This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. So, I said to the chap with wings, I'm glad you're happy. This week on the DWP, we review the DVDs of the Demons, or the Daemons, and the Happiness Patrol. Hundred and fifty-five. That's right. Um, Good God! You know that gets depressing even every time I hear. You know, well, as we get hundred and fifty. I mean, when I, once we reached one hundred and fifty, it was sort of, oh my God! It really sunk into me how many of these things we've done. Uh, uh, roughly about forty-five minutes each. So what's a hundred and what's what's forty-five times by one hundred and fifty? It's it's several years. Yeah, it's, probably. It's a considerable chunk <laughs> and re- of our lives. And remember, 45 minutes is only the edit. <laughs> it's about 90 minutes each week well, that we record. Let's say 45, and then divided by 60, about 125 hours of podcast out there. And that's just on our regular episodes yeah. alone. 12 quizzes, 12 three, quizzes three, three specials. specials. About four um, episodes that have been lost and uh, will never be recovered. <laughs> Um, not to mention all the planning and the emails, and basically we have no oh, life. God, this is fun. No so welcome, one and all, to our 126th <laughs> hour of podcasting, where we are taking a trip to Terror Alpha uh, via Devil's End uh, and looking at the Happiness Patrol and uh, the Demons, or is it the Demons? How do we say it? It how depends you... whether you're Australian or not. How do you pronounce it in Australia, Trev? Well, I, I will admit, uh, we, I've always been a little bit confused over here because my pronunciation has never been that spot on, as uh, listeners will attest. Um, I usually just go for the demons because someone will usually ask me when I say the demons, what the heck are you talking about? So I just go, the demons, and then everyone knows what I'm talking about. Now, I used to say demons, uh, but there is a, like an American-style chain of restaurants in the UK called Damon's, and people used to get confused as to, ah. as to what I was talking about. What I found more difficult, actually, was reproducing the, the, the name in a written format. Mm. Always having to find that special character which joined the A and the E together. Yes, yeah, and do you know people have done annoying. it? People have done it on Twitter as well. Mm. I, I asked them. I asked people what they thought of the two stories yesterday on Twitter, and someone came back using the, you know, the A and the E together. I then spent half an hour trying to figure out how to do it, and then just cut and paste. It's called a diphthong, <laughs> isn't it? It's a what? It's called a diphthong. That sounds like something that you might be able to order in a chain of American restaurants. It does, you know, and that's why I've remembered it all these years. (laughs) Being served by a hundred foot demon. The the trials and tribulations of being a 21st century Doctor Who fan, hey? Spending half an hour searching for that little A&E squashed together character thing. And that's not just a 21st century thing. That's a a 20th century thing. People have been trying to replicate it even by the written hand before the computers existed. Curse you, Guy Leopold. Curse you. (laughs) Whoever you are. Anyway. Welcome one and all to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Great to have your company. As you may have figured out by our extended ramble, we'll be uh, reviewing a couple of DVDs 
today, one from the Pertwee era, one from the Sylvester McCoy era. But before we start, I must say hello to James and hello to Leeson. Hello to you, Trevor. Hello, Trevor. Hello. Pleasure to be here as always. And hello to all you listeners who have once again been particularly busy on sending us emails. And we've had some great one-line emails. And I haven't told Trev or Leeson about these because I just want to throw out these questions. Right, first question from Joe. Is Doctor Who a sci-fi or a fantasy? It's a sci-fi fantasy. Sci-fi. I would say neither. It's <laughs> it's a drama. Uh, fundamentally, it's about human relationships. Doctor Who. The setting is incidental. Right. No. <laughs> is that question. was that what was that what he, was that what he said or is that what you say? That's what I say. I would agree if you said the modern era was a drama, most definitely, because I, mm. I've used the words kitchen and sink quite often <laughs> yeah. with regards to the modern series. <laughs> yes. but. But to describe the classic series as a relationship drama series? No. no it's, it's science fiction. Oh, I, I think the classic series is a little bit more of an interesting debate. I think there are elements, and probably the most powerful parts of it are dramatic as opposed to sci-fi, um, particularly when you're looking at well-loved companions leaving um, or, or stories that leave that mark on you. It's generally to do with someone's uh, psyche. You look at the, the, the latter um, stories within the McCoy era. It was all about how Ace related to the world, and uh, you got a whole era out of that, pretty much, or at least two seasons. But on, on the whole, I think I do agree with you. I think the classic series you can see far more as sci-fi, but 2005 onwards, there's no doubt in my mind, it's all about relationships. This could be, mm. you know, EastEnders in space, pretty much. Well, so science fiction is just a specific, is just a, a drama in a specific setting, um, you know, sort of a science fiction type setting. So they're synonymous, really, aren't they? Possibly. I'm not quite sure I would go that down that route. You look at something like Alien, for me that's pure sci-fi and it's 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 dramatic but not because the emphasis is on the relationships it's whether or not these people are going to to live or die in fact you could argue aliens almost a horror film as opposed to a sci-fi film yes but it's, it's still about the crew of the, the Nostromo isn't it it's still about it's still about the people on board if if you took the people out no it's it's not really as far as I, I mean i i think the thing that comes closer to a sci-fi series that focuses mainly on drama slash comedy is stuff like Red Dwarf, where the where the sci-fi setting is incidental to the drama. I mean, that, that sort of um, show could be done in any sort of setting. It, it just happens to be set on a spaceship. Whereas I think Doctor Who primarily is a science fiction story with drama trappings, not not the other way around. Oh, I think it's the other way around. I think it's a drama with sci-fi trappings. <laughs> the, sto- <laughs> the stories that are being told are all about the people and not, not the settings. Next question. <laughs> this is about Series 6. At the end of A Good Man Goes to War, Amy and Rory are at Demon's Run, how do they get to Earth by the start of Let's Kill Hitler? And this particular person hasn't sent in their name, so we can't give you a, um, a plug, I'm afraid, on the show. Um, Over to you, Leeson. Um, it's not something I'd ever given any thought to before, uh, and I can't, can't come up with a feasible solution. Over to you, Trev. Um I'll, I'll have to pass the question on to the uh, least scorer, and that would be James. <laughs> well, I think, and I'm not certain, I think there's a line from the 11th Doctor, and he says to River, the, you know, the, the river as we knew her then, get Amy and Rory home. 
And I think she does somehow because River's always been capable of time travel, just that it's not been particularly clear how in every case. So that's, I think that, that's, River what I, that's what I was home. thinking. Yeah, mm. that's that's that, that's interesting. How has River ever been shown to be capable of time travel? Because she pops up in multiple different eras out of order. But isn't that the whole idea of the tenth slash eleventh Doctor River relationship that it's out of order anyway? Yeah, but she's still got to get from one point in time to another. So, for instance, when she received that invite in The Impossible Astronaut, she still had to get there from her prison, which she was able to do. Wasn't she given the invite in Impossible Astronaut at a, like, contemporaneous time? No, she arrived in her she cell. Would, like, like, she got the invite, jumped in a spaceship and went to Earth? Oh, I don't she think she jumped in a spaceship. Travel, did she? Yeah, I, I think she just got there. I don't think it was made explicitly clear. Goodness me, these, sing- these simple one-line questions, they're not as yeah, straightforward I mean, as I thought. that's... that's uh... That's really interesting. I mean, I, I actually would love to know where is it explicitly or even even slightly shown that River is capable of independent time travel? Because mm, she always seems to be relying on the Doctor, or I'd always seen it as that she was relying on the Doctor for that sort of thing by you know just send, yeah, send, send, sending I mean, him a set of coordinates. Like that and stuff that. where she, um, like, like that scene where she jumped out of the spaceship, like where she blew the hole in the side and jumped out, knowing the Doctor would be there at that time. Yeah, and she did the um, same in Day of the Moon as well when she jumped out of the building. Yeah. But at the same time, how did she get from her prison? which is meant to be in, what, 51st century something or other, to uh, 2011 at Lake Silencia, just because she got an invite materialised through the bars of her, uh, her prison. Hmm. Over to you, listeners. Get Stephen mm. Moffat on the phone. The point. And, and we, and we yes. can't even say thank you uh, to the guy or lady who raised that question, because we haven't got their name. Next. Okay. Oh, yes, next. Sorry, right. <laughs> no, no more questions, but we've got some good feedback on our... Um, episode that we put out recently about toys and we've got a note here from brian hall who says most expensive by far and outstripping the remote controlled new series dalek is a single year subscription to the doctor who magazine uh, which is 130 dollars and if that's us dollars that's around about 80 80 pounds so that's a that's something we didn't think about when we were talking about how much money we, we tend to spend on merchandise and Doctor Who paraphernalia. Mm. Can you count Doctor Who magazine as a toy? Not really, no. But we were talking about the amount of money that we've uh, ah, true, <laughs> wasted true. On, our, uh, on our passion. And now we have a piece of audio feedback from Samuel. Hey there, DWP. This is Samuel Lewis from TSCN.TV. And the episode about toys and collectibles actually inspired me to do my own personal inventory. So I decided to grab my digital recorder and actually take you guys along with it. Shouldn't take long. In my kitchen, I actually have a Pandorica Opens Vincent van Gogh, I think I put enough mucus into that, mug, which I never drink coffee out of. I drink hot chocolate out of it instead. That's just the kind of guy I am. On my table over here, I have a TARDIS cookie jar that makes the noises that I use strictly for my candy instead of cookies. I've got a Fifth Doctor in regeneration outfit, which means that it's a figure of Peter Davison with the fourth Doctor's last outfit still. And then also on my computer desk, I have a TARDIS USB hub. If I go through my hallway here, actually to where I've got the rest of my props, on my shelf I've got a little 11th Doctor TARDIS that actually spins around. It's got wheels underneath because I wanted to have at least one of the newest models. I've got a thing of psychic paper... I've got two versions of the Fob Watch that was from 
family of blood. There we go. Um, one of them is a very bulky one, which has David Tennant's voice inside of it. And the other one is actually the prize of my collection. Whenever it comes to closest to actually being actual replicas, this fob watch is the one. I've got it off of ThinkGeek, and it's probably the most money I've spent on a replica. But it's an actual well-made fob watch that even has a backlight if you want to see it in the dark. I actually have one of the adipose stress balls that Trev mocked. So the poor little guy had to calm him down after he found out he was mocked. Um, and then, finally, my Sonic Screwdriver collection. Because if you're going to collect the cheap props, you've got to collect the Sonic Screwdriver. So I've got the 3rd, 4th, 9th, and 10th, 11th, and I actually have River Song's future Sonic Screwdriver and the Laser Screwdriver. The only ones that are missing from my collection, and I probably will never get them because you have to pay a boatload of money to get your hands on them, are actually the Sonic Lipstick and the Sonic Pen. So those will probably stay out of my collection. And then finally, the last bit of Doctor Who merchandise is a Psychic Cube, like the one that he got a message in from apparently the Corsair. Of course, we found out later that wasn't the case in The Doctor's Wife. So that's all of my little bits of Doctor Who memorabilia that happened to be lying around my place. You guys wanted to know, so I figured I'd tell you. As always, love the podcast and keep up the good work. See you guys. Well, thank you there, Samuel, for your strange audio trip around your living room there. And uh, yeah, uh, strange that, uh, that that worked on audio. I did get a sense for all of the things that you've, you've got around your room. And I, I have to say that although I didn't take part in that episode where we talked about the toys... My apartment is very similar uh, sounding. There are, there's lots and lots of bits uh, around everywhere. There's a Cyberman head on the wall in the living room. That's probably the only bit that's allowed to remain in the living room now. Since I've had a, had a small child there, I've removed them all to a to safe distance. So they're all high up on shelves now, but they are dotted around. And, and they, do, they do take over, don't they, lads? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Yes, and uh, so much so that I think we're going to be running some competitions fairly soon where the prize is will be some toys. <laughs> Not yes, related we, we, could, we could clear some space. Yes, it's, it's, it's my wife's idea, and she calls it decluttering. Um, I think this is going to be quite emotionally painful for me, but, uh, but it does need to be done. It has to be said. We'll be moving soon. Painful for you, but great for our listeners. <laughs> I, I call it memorabilia exfoliation. Really, that sounds like <laughs> someone's scrubbing something, trying to get a, a layer of... Um, dead skin of mm. it. <laughs> I have one particular piece uh, of my because I missed this episode so, and I was I was a bit gutted that uh, that, uh, that nature was a, was against me on that day. I had a story about my uh, my Sylvester McCoy action figure which I got when I was uh, when I was a kid. When they really first started doing a, a branded BBC range of toys and I remember going to the uh, to the store at Christmas when they set up the Christmas zone and there was just a tiny little panel of, of Doctor Who toys. There was a pull back and go Imperial Dalek. Uh, there was a Mel and there was a seventh doctor with his umbrella. And I got this, and a couple of days after Christmas, my dog chewed it to pieces. And I had to watch my mum uh, throw my Sylvester McCoy action figure away. Um, <laughs> and we, we took it out of the bin. Uh, and we ended up, we, we performed a proper ceremony, and he was buried at the bottom of the garden. Uh, and, and it's probably still there. Pro- oh, thank goodness. I mean, she didn't flush him down the toilet. <laughs> no, no. Mutant Sylvester McCoy in the sewers. That, that would be terrible. She saw my childish face, you know, and the little tear forming uh, as she was putting it in the bin, and then we decided we'd do it properly. But, you know, the, the umbrella had disappeared. I didn't know what, what had happened to the umbrella. Um, however, a couple of days later, it became apparent what had happened to the umbrella because I was reunited with it. Um, it had been through the dog. I still have the umbrella. <laughs> In fact, I'm holding it now. 
um, but that, that was a nice little treat that, that, uh, that I got. I got that back, uh, and, it, and it was absolutely fine. It's in perfectly perfect working order. You got it through the dog. Uh, yes, via the dog's uh, internal system. Were you walking the dog at this point, or were you just clearing up in the garden? Uh, it was uh, it was my my stepdad had actually taken him out and was doing the good thing and cleaning cleaning up. And when he went to to to, uh, to lift the deposit, he noticed that there was something solid inside it, and it was McCoy's umbrella. I tell you what, next time we have a day at Big Finish Towers, <laughs> we'll send you along. And you can present his umbrella back to him. I think that would be a a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. Well, you 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 can say it's a homage of some kind to the Happiness Patrol having a seventh doctor crawl through sewers, and um, fantastic. Nice t- oh. tying it on there, bringing bringing it back on message. I'm I'm actually still back at the beginning of your conversation. We used the word Sylvester McCoy and action in one sentence I mean <laughs> of all the doctors I, I could think of that could have that verb applied to poor old McCoy isn't one of them as far as I'm concerned no mm. not particularly so but it's, there you go well it's, it's probably the most interesting merchandise story that we've heard but um, I'm, I'm not too sure as to whether I am pleased that you had difficulty with your recording studio that episode or not I think you'd have brought it down a notch or two <laughs> down time, to the gutter anyway let's move on we've got two other things that we need to discuss before we get into reviewing the DVDs the first of which I think is is going to require me to turn my earphones to mute. Trevor, what's your view of the absence, or pretty much an absence, of Doctor Who from the Olympic opening ceremony? Oh, I mean, it's it's something everyone's been talking about, haven't they? And it was a really, really good ceremony. Fantastic effects, um, re- really quite a spectacle. And then during the uh, 70s musical montage, where, of course, they had Bowie and Queen and Rolling Stones, you hear this... TARDIS dematerialization. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, oh, oh my goodness. I quickly got onto Facebook and Twitter and told all, all my many followers. And of course, they said, yes, we know that. What are you talking about? But then that was it for the rest of the ceremony. I, I sat there waiting expectantly, you know, my, my uh, Twitter client in my hand, ready to tell the world that, you know, Doctor Who was in the Olympics, that we saw a TARDIS or that we saw a picture of a floppy scarf or something like that. But that materialization was the only thing in the entire opening ceremony for the London Olympics, which was apparently their uh, celebration of British culture in TV and film and music and um, iconic British institutions like the NHS. Now I know a little bit more that it it had to be cut due to uh, timing reasons, but surely if anything was going to be cut, why would they cut something that has contributed nearly 50 years of uh, contributions to British culture? How come Doctor Who didn't get a more significant look into the London opening ceremony? Answer me that. Well, I mean, my heart skipped a beat when I heard the TARDIS groan. Um, and I, I, I can't say I was expecting there to be any more at that point. Uh, obviously, in, in, in reflection, when, when you think, as you say, it was meant to, it, it represented so much of, of British culture that it does seem a, yeah. bit, a bit odd that, that it wasn't included. Maybe it would have been nice to have a materialising TARDIS. That, that, that would have been a bit, a bit, a bit of smoke. There's the, there's the TARDIS. That probably would have done it for me. But when you say that, uh, that stuff was cut, was there specific stuff about Doctor Who yes. which were cut? Yeah, what there was, there was actually a montage that Edward Russell oversaw and put together. Uh, they spent quite a bit of time doing it, from what I understand, and it had images, at least, of all 11 actors who have played the Doctor. And whether or not that was supposed to be pretty much, you know, a 10, 12 seconds montage whilst you had the sound of the TARDIS um, at the same time, nobody really knows. But I, I think the good thing is that the, they've still got it, so it will turn up 
somewhere yeah. and it may yeah. even turn up depending on what they've got planned for the closing ceremony relatively soon we'll we'll, we'll have to see mm. but as far as i'm concerned I, I i do kind of agree with leeson you know i was really surprised to hear anything from doctor who because oh, I, I come on it, look, it is look. it is a huge institution no. here yes but it's not something so iconic i mean as, as coronation street for instance and that didn't get a look in um eastenders did ironically right at the very beginning for about 20 seconds but more people watch eastenders than they watch doctor who so you know <laughs> what, around the world oh look look honestly no, within we, Britain. i mean i i i cannot believe you were saying <clears throat> that doctor who is not an iconic show across I'm not the saying world. That. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that. Danny Boyle mentioned um, in, in the lead-up to the Olympics that he, he gave an example of the show The Clangers as a series that wouldn't get a look into the Olympics because while it's a British institution, um, it, it's not known worldwide. Doctor Who doesn't fit into that category. It, it is a worldwide institution. And, and James, yes, I would have been happy with even 10 or 12 seconds. Something projected onto that uh, house they had in the middle of the thing mm-hmm. when they were doing that awful love story about texting between that girl and guy and LOL and oh my god type of nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Why couldn't they have cut a little bit out of that and, and shown something there right. to do with Doctor Who? I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not expecting 20 minutes of the ceremony to be set aside to TARDISes and scarves and, and jelly beans and stuff like that, but that it didn't barely rate a whisper in a, a celebration of British culture is, is scandalous. It's, the reason it didn't is because Doctor Who is not known worldwide anywhere near as people think it is. It's an institution within the UK. It's an institution within rubbish. Britain. Absolute it's, rubbish. It's not at all. It's still niche within America. It's still Absolute niche rubbish. elsewhere. It's, it's simply not. The, the thing that you can class as truly international and truly worldwide that is British is something like James Bond's and they really went to town on that because mm. that really does have a global appeal. Doctor Who is simply not that well known in the States and it's certainly not that well known elsewhere. James, TV burp got more screen time in the opening ceremony for the Olympics than Doctor Who does. Where is the justice in that? <laughs> Where is the justice? I miss TV burp. Harry Hill was there, was he? Doctor Who isn't as well known as James Bond. And like I said, I'm not expecting half the ceremony to be set aside to it. But where's our 10 or 15 seconds of fame? Where is the acknowledgement of Doctor Who's contribution to at least British culture? It would have been good. It would have been good, no question. But I'm, I'm not hugely disappointed. I was just really buzzing when I heard that old Type 40 with a handbrake on. So was I, but then <laughs> I, I was unbuzzed. I mean, the whole ceremony was really good. It, it, it was a fantastic spectacle. Well, see, I, I went into it expe- expecting there to be nothing and was kind of pleased that there was something, yes, albeit a very yes, small yes. something. And see, ironically, they could have cut the NHS down to just a wheeze and a groan, didn't they? <laughs> 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 In other recent years, too, uh, we, we must report on the uh, sad passing of uh, Doctor Who companion Mary Tam, who, of course, played Romana Number 1 alongside Tom Baker in the uh, Key to Time season. Uh, the, she was only like 60, what, 64 62. years old or something like that? 62. 62. Mm, yeah. And uh, she'd uh, lost a uh, brave fight to uh, cancer over the last couple of years. So an, an incredibly sad loss to the Doctor Who community, someone that has been taken way, way too young. 
Yeah, it does seem to be a bad year for for losing it does, Doctor Who alumni yeah. at the moment. And, um, you know, when you consider 62 is absolutely no age at all. And despite her having cancer, as you say, Trev, for the last couple of years, she's been recording, she's been working um, with, with Big Finish. And I think listening to the second series of Tom Baker audios that are due to come out in January next year is going to be all the more poignant now. Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, it will be interesting to hear those. And to, presumably, she will have known uh, at that stage that, uh, that this will be her last crack at the, Rom- the Romana whip, as it were. Um, so, yeah, mm. poignant. Uh, yeah, is the word. Very, very sad to hear, and uh, very, very sudden too. I mean, uh, certainly she hadn't made this sort of information public. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, presumably apart from her family, and you know, she must be a very private person. Our thoughts go out to uh, her family and friends at this time. No, absolutely. I gaze down at the blazing wreck of the Hermes. Oh, Doctor, all those people, I said. Sally, Lady Darlington, the Professor. They were dead the moment the psychovores had entered their bodies and established the physical and psychic link, he told me sadly. And the safe have gone, asked Tommy. Yes, Tommy, I replied. The safe have gone. So we've won, is that right? He wanted to know. Yes, Tommy, I said sadly. I suppose you could say we've won. Come on, I'm sure Anne will be waiting for you. Silently, we made our way along the beach and back to the hotel. Soon, the only sound was that of the waves, lapping gently on the shore of the peaceful blue Mediterranean Sea. On to the main part of the podcast, uh, which is taking us a little bit longer than I expected it to <laughs> originally. Uh, we're going to be talking about two classic stories, The Demons and The Happiness Patrol. I asked a couple of podcasts ago what these two stories had in common, and I, I think I'll just ask that of Trevor and Leeson before we get into the reviews. Trev, do you want to go first on this one? What they have in common? Oh, geez, that's an interesting one. Since we're not doing a quiz, I, I can actually say I'm just waiting for my Wikipedia page to open. <laughs> so The, the world uh, set, set at night time. I know there's a lot of night shooting in The Demons and Happiness Patrols at night. All right. I'm, I'm going to say from an Australian perspective, The Demons and The Happiness Patrol are both season enders. How about that? It wasn't what I was thinking, but it's, it's, but it's, it's, true. it's certainly a better answer, it's... in fact, than the one that I've got. As far as I can tell, the Happiness Patrol and the Demons have absolutely nothing in common whatsoever. It's just that we needed to review a couple of DVDs together fairly soon, so we just (laughs) chose these. That's it. But I like the way that Trevor's tried to work in a little bit of logic and rationality there. Excellent. Didn't work. So so let let me just clarify that for the, the, the listeners out there. The thing they have in common is they have nothing in common. Well done, Trevor. Oh, you should uh, be in charge of putting DVD sets together for, for the uh, two entertainment. <laughs> yes. You know, what, it's, it's almost as random at this stage, isn't it? <laughs> it could be called the Not In Common set yes. or something like that. Or the that. miscellaneous box set. And they could have a picture of Bok and the demon next to Trevor Sigma and the Candyman on the cover with lots of streaks through the pictures like they always do on these book and DVD covers. Yeah, we're just an untapped pool of talent here. I mean, just waiting for you know, BBC Worldwide, as it is now, to come along and ask us to 
you know, contribute to their marketing mm. strategy. So, yep. Our emails are on the website, guys. We're, we're waiting for the call. I look forward to it. Yeah. Get in touch. Plenty more mm. where that came from. <laughs> Come on, let's, let's talk about the demons then. And um, who, who wants to go first on this one? I'll go first. The demons. Pertwee story, just say right off the top of the bat, fantastic story. It, it is one that I think is regarded amongst many fans as the, one of the true definitions of a classic, classic series story. It has everything in it. It, it it is a really wonderful story for all concerned it was a story that was written by then current producer Barry Letts and Robert Sloman but put out under the pseudonym of Guy Leopold because the Writers Guild at the time was having a bit of a whinge about producers and directors writing their own stories so they put a bit of a non-deplume on it Barry and Robert became Guy Leopold. What I love about this story is its use of locations. Apparently they spent more than two weeks on location for this story, which is more than double a normal Doctor Who story at the time. Wonderful use of locations. This this, this quaint little UK village, which, which becomes this weird and mysterious place called Devil's End. Fantastic performances from John Pertwee and uh, Katie Manning, who, who get lots of wonderful little character moments between the two. There's that fantastic scene in episode one where they're driving up to Devil's End and um, Katie gets them lost on the roads because she's holding the map upside down. I, I think because Barry Letts wrote this story primarily, he knew the way the characters ticked and he understood what needed to be written for them. So every single main character in the story gets their own little moment and it, 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 it's a fantastic story. Yeah, I mean, right from, right from the get-go, uh, episode one, uh, you're straight into the action and night shooting on, on Doctor Who, which is you know, very few and far between, but used to such mm. great effect in, in this episode. So you've got, you've got rain, it's night, thunderclaps, lightning. So right from the word go, you've got this fa- fabulous sort of atmosphere building about this, this strange village. And then even later in, in episode one, with, with the linking TV narration of the, uh, the TV reporters that are, are filming the, uh, the, the going into the hump, it's just got such a pace to it. That um, that perhaps that era of who who didn't have it, it felt kind of modern in uh, in its in its direction, postmodern even, mm, yeah, postmodern at the time, that yeah. sort of TV on TV type of thing where where we have a TV show filming a TV show basically, and it worked mm. it worked really well as a as a as a way into to the story. You feel yourself being being drawn in very very quickly. It was, uh, just as a quick note, this was the first Pertwee that I ever ever saw when they did the original colorization and they they showed it. I think tea times over a couple of nights on BBC Two. So uh, this was maybe early 90s, I think, uh, so somewhere around then. And even then, it, it got me, and I, I hadn't really lo- looked at too much sort of old, older Who than I was enjoying at the time, so it would have been um, the Who that I knew, 80s and uh, the TV movie. But uh, So even then, it, it got me. And I, it's just it's pacey. Uh, like you say, all the characters are well-written for. Everyone's got their little moment. All their best qualities are brought out in a, in a very effective way. It's... Uh, it's a winner for me. James, come come and join the party and tell us how wonderful the demons is. Overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I really did enjoy it. And um I, I hadn't seen this prior to its release on DVD since it had come out on VHS and I remember really enjoying it on VHS. I remember thinking this is a fantastic story and I was very, very much looking forward to uh, to watching a story as I popped the DVD into the player. But for me, they, I mean they, it's just not that good it's it, it it nothing really happens for a lot of the story um but what that does do is is allow a lot more time to be focused on the characters and benton and yates for instance really 
come off well in this story. Uh, they're in civvies most of the time. There's lots of scenes with just a pair of them where they're deciding what to do. And I think these characters hadn't had as much development put into one single script uh, prior to the demons. And I really enjoyed that, particularly parts one and two. That that kind of works really, really well for me. Um, I agree with a lot of what you say, Trevor, about the locations as well. Um, you know, really spooky, villagey kind of thing. Uh, I think they went back to that kind of feel later on in the Fourth Doctor's era uh, for the android invasion. And I think that worked just as well also. And I, I just think it was... It was just really effective visually, and that's something that Doctor Who hadn't always managed to achieve up to that point. Mm. I don't think Joe Grant came off particularly well. I think as, as the example you gave, Trevor, I mean, comic though it is, it just adds to how silly she was, and particularly when all of a sudden she just decides to jump out of a top floor. You know, I mean, I'm sure there was the way of getting down out of that pub. I think there was she a ladder there, James. Yeah, Come but on. even Come so, on. the decision process there, you know, I'm going to just leave, I thought was a bit silly. Yeah. And Delgado's master, I don't actually think was brilliant. I, 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 I loved him as the vicar. And I, I thought the Reverend Magister was, was a great invention. But I, I wasn't overly keen on him trying to tap into what was deliberately billed as the supernatural, almost, you know. I, it reminded me a little bit of Eric Roberts' performance uh, in, the, um, oh, in the TV no. film, oh, uh, particularly in terms oh. of, of, of costume. No. Um, but again, the, the, whole, the whole access into the story, uh, the BBC Three television uh, uh, channel, which of course didn't exist back mm. then either, and of course it's ironic because it does now, just, just, felt, just felt really, really good. But um, on the whole, I thought it was an okay thing. Um, viewing it now through an adult's eyes in 21st century... I would say it was slightly overrated. Well, I'm going to have to pull you up on, on Delgado's performance there because doing that sort of, uh, when, you, when you're summoning demons and you're, you're, you're reciting uh, rites and rituals, there is so much possibility, so much scope for them to be, you know, cringe-makingly bad. And, and he does them with such conviction and, uh, and such style that those scenes are, are electric because of it. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I completely disagree with you on that one. I think, I think he, he carries those moments in a way that a lesser actor would have, uh, would have made them you know, hide behind the sofa moments. I'm not saying he was bad. He was just a little bit hammy in places. Just a little bit hammy. Ooh, no, I think he, I think he had just on the right side of it. I think we're seeing a few things here that um, are trademarks of, of the Delgado master as well. That we're seeing a very sure of himself master that still gets his comeuppance at quite random points in the story. He's very sure that he can control Azal, but then that doesn't work out. He has that wonderful meeting with the townsfolk in his uh, hmm. uh, church or whatever, or house, hmm. where he thinks he can just lord it over them all and say, you know, all will be yours. But half of them go, well, what, what, what the heck are you talking about, mate? You're, you're just the vicar. What, what can you do for us? It really shows for me that the Delgado master can be a little bit too sure of himself sometimes. And, and often, as we see later with some of the later master stories um, in the Pertwee era, he, he often has to turn to the doctor to get him out of trouble. Mm. And, and while he didn't have to in this story, you can certainly see there that it could have, I, I suppose, spun on a dime a little bit and, and he would have had to turn to the doctor to help him control Azal. I do agree a little bit with what you say about Joe Grant. I think some of the writers did forget sometimes that Joe Grant is a unit operative. She just isn't a civilian who's, who's working with the Doctor. Um, and, and they often forget that she's supposed to be a trained 
unit person, not just someone off the street. And I think the demons does show that a little bit, that she spends a lot of time screaming with that horrified look on her face. Mm. She holds maps upside down. Um, she, she makes some quite irrational decisions at certain points in the story. But I, I think that that's what makes Joe Grant Joe Grant, really, for me. That um, Joe Grant was an extreme reaction to Liz Shaw. Yeah. That's all. It was just going, uh, mm. turning around 180 degrees up the direction and running really, really fast. And uh, it worked in places because there were some wonderful Joe moments in other stories. But this one, uh, I mean, she just didn't really <laughs> didn't really come to the fore at all. And, and neither, it has to be said, did the Brigadier, particularly. He was stuck on the other side of the heat shield. So the story didn't really allow him uh, to get involved in, in, in much of the action until the end, which, of course, is where you get the f- fantastic shootout outside the church and the five rounds rapid line. He has some wonderful moments with the with his little uh, sites of the communications officer as they're trying to set up that device. There there are a few little nice scenes between the two of them with the, the brig getting exasperated mm. and yeah. uh, the comedy dad's army ish character of uh, of the communications <laughs> that officer. That stuff always reminds me of the um, interactions in the uh, Tenant Easter special with the unit scientists. I think yeah. they mentioned <laughs> oh, a yes, review yeah. of that. You're quite that, right. That yeah. hark back to me to the demons because it had a very very similar character in both. The almost bumbling scientist type trying to keep up with what the Doctor was doing. It was Bernard, wasn't it? Um, Lee Evans' Mm. character in Planet of the Dead. And Mm. it's one of the few things about that show that I really, really thought worked. But um, I still enjoyed it, even despite the fact it didn't work. Even the side characters are interesting. The uh, White Witch, um, whose whose name I've forgotten. Miss Hawthorne. Mm -hmm. Miss Hawthorne, she she is absolutely brilliant. Just, Just, she immerses herself in that character so wonderfully. At that point, um, the the junking and destroying of Doctor Who episodes was was common knowledge to the production team, uh, Barry Letts, and within the BBC, they they, they knew it was happening. Uh, so Barry Letts had the power to put what was called a preservation order on 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 stories that they made, and they very rarely tagged these things for pres- preservation orders. Uh, but the Demons was uh, was one of the ones that uh, that was tagged for a preservation order. Given that he wrote it, um, yeah, there may be a little bit of bias there, but it was certainly one of the ones that he <laughs> that he was keen to see survive. Turning to the DVD itself for a moment, there's there's a extra on it that I've been waiting for a long, long time to appear on a Pertwee DVD. It's a it, it's a half hour tribute to the late Barry Letts, who mm. was the uh, of course co writer of the story. Mm. He was the producer during the Pertwee era. They talked to both his sons in this documentary, and they either look like him or sound like him it's absolutely uncanny and they just basically go through Barry's life his early acting career his moving into directing and then producing and then uh, mentoring DVD extra that I've been waiting for for a very long time and it didn't disappoint oh it's strange because that took me by surprise uh, the DVD I have to say when I when, when I started playing that feature I would say five minutes into it I was thinking I'm probably not going to watch all of this um, I, I stuck with it for another five ten minutes and I was utterly hooked and by the end of it i was in tears because uh, it was it was so well done and um i think if you've got even a residual interest in the guys behind the camera around you know this this time of the show when it was made then you, you need to seek out this particular special feature because it's it's done really really well it was very nice to see uh, some clips of his early acting career because of course he started as an actor before before getting into 
directing and then, and then production. Um, so, I mean, I, I've read his, his autobiography, uh, Who and Me, I think it's called, mm. um, where he goes into that in some great detail. So, but I'd never seen any of these clips. And he was quite a big television star in this country. Um, he was part of a, a regular cast of characters which would, would turn up uh, on certain dramas. Um, but I'd never seen anything. Uh, so it's very nice to see what he did in his early career and how he took that journey from from being an actor to being a director then to being a producer and then occasionally directing the odd Doctor Who. One of the other things on this DVD that I was looking forward to that I, I knew would be covered would be the colorization of the demons. Now, mm. as, as was said before, um, there, there was wholesale junking of Doctor Who, but this didn't stop the color print of the demons initially being destroyed mm. due to a combination of the uh, black and white film print and a off-air copy from an, an American recording they are able to join the two back together and give us this uh, colour version that we see on the DVD and I think was also released for the VHS from memory as well. It, it, it was the first time Demons had been seen in colour yeah. mm. um, yeah. since, since its original transmission. And uh, it, it, it was for me back in the 90s when there was, this was happening, one of the first times that I'd been exposed to this uh, restoration effort on, on behalf of whatever parties were involved to restore some of these stories back to their original glory. And uh, one of the other ones too at the time was Invasion of the Dinosaurs Episode 1, which only existed as a very, very bad quality um, colour copy, which uh, has, has, has now been restored with the DVD. And, of course, next year we get uh, Ambassadors. Ambassadors of Death from the uh, first season of Pertwee, which will finally be restored to, from what I've seen, an absolutely gorgeous colour print. So from something that has been recolorized to something which was initially planned to be filmed in black and white. You are actually talking about the Happiness Patrol, aren't you? Just for the avoidance of doubt there, Leeson. That's right, yes, the, the, the <laughs> Happiness Patrol. Because some people may not know that it was going to be filmed in black and white. It ended up being a, a dark, um, subterranean... Subterranean? It wasn't subterranean at all. That's what I thought it was when no, I was No, precisely. It's one of the major things that's wrong with it. It's supposed to be, you know, external. It's supposed to be outside, and yet with gleaming floors and it's very clearly a studio. Well, this is it. I, my memory of it as a child, and as, as I um, uh, enjoyed it, I did think it was some kind of subterranean planet. And I didn't enjoy it any less because of it. And I still see it like that. And even though I know it's supposed to be external now, I still I prefer to think of it as maybe, maybe, it's, an, maybe it's internal. Maybe, maybe they've covered over the streets to try and uh, you know, keep the people from seeing anything that might make them unhappy. Subterranean outside studio bound or otherwise i'll say right from the bat guys and something that may surprise you i love the happiness patrol no you don't i, I do it. not believe I, you i do no, not believe i you. do and and i understand your bemusement i understand your total consternation at my love of this story but despite all the odds happiness patrol is one that i absolutely loved from this season um it, it has everything in it that i should hate about doctor who totally studio bound uh, a, a budget which looked like it was done for about 20 cents uh but i think what gets me about this story is its character is the depth within it that there's there's stuff in it that can be revealed for, for for those that want to dig a little bit deeper into it. But I think one of the things that really makes this story work for me is the score by Dominic Glynn. Pretty much harmonica based. It's a wonderfully blues infused score that imparts such an incredible sense of melancholy throughout the entire story. Uh, it, it works so well for me, and, and, and it's a real shame Tom can't be here today because I think he would probably agree because this sort of score would be right up his alley in terms of the style 
and the mood and the feel. Uh, for, for me, the, the shortcomings of this story are papered over <laughs> by the score to a, a, a great degree because I think it infuses such a fantastic sense of mood. Well, I have to agree entirely with you, Trevor. I, I absolutely love The Happiness Patrol. I would go even further than you and perhaps say it's more, probably my favourite McCoy story. I, what's not to love about it? I love the, um, although it wasn't shot in black and white, the fact that it's so drab and dreary, except for these flashes of colour that were the, um, the Happiness Patrol themselves, looking like cracked and, and faded superstars with their makeup. And against the background, the drab background, it's, it's all just so striking and so nicely done. And the Candyman himself, absolute genius. Shame they never got a chance to use him again. Performed wonderfully with such passion. And you, the performance you can see being being given through this 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 bizarre costume uh is is absolutely marvelous i, I never tire of uh, of saying welcome to the candy kitchen doctor in a <laughs> in what in what i like to think is a candyman voice i bottled out of doing it just then so i'm obviously not <laughs> not quite so sure have another go now welcome to the candy kitchen doctor Yes. Yeah, it's probably good yeah, you bottled it. I think so, <laughs> too. Yeah. <laughs> nice try. I won't even try. It's something I, that br- brings me a lot of happiness. Oh, I'm, I'm very pleased it does. Um, oh, I'm glad you're happy. But um, I, I, I'm stunned. I'm absolutely stunned. Um, more so by Trevor, I have to say. I thought you would have hated this. How can you like this and not like Delta and the Bannerman? I mean, oh, there, is, there is no music in your soul, <laughs> to use a pun. No, I, I think because um, it has an incredible sense of style that for oh. me... I mean, I understand the story has some incredible leaps of logic in it. It has some stuff which looks like was lost in the edit. It should have been a four-part story rather than a three-part story. I'm sure there's something that's been lost in the edit. I'm sure there's something there that we're missing um, story structure-wise that we don't get in the three-part version. But for me... You know, for some bizarre reason, even back when I saw it, back in the 80s, I was happy to ignore that because I think there's some wonderful themes running through this story. One of my favourite scenes from the Sylvester McCoy era is that scene at the end, and, and spoilers, by the way, guys, if you haven't seen this, mm-hmm. was where um, the death of Fifi Ugh. and the music swells up over the top. And mm. I know it's a corny scene. I, I know... In any other story, I would have hated this and laughed at it. But for me, it is an incredible scene with just McCoy standing there going, it's done. Mm. And it it always sits with me. I mean, when I was younger, I used to produce um, tapes, like tapes, you know, tapes you put in tape recorders, not CDs or MP3s, guys, actual tapes. Mm -hmm. And I used to put... Um, soundtracks on them. I used to have stuff like Doctor Who, like the scene in Five Doctors where the uh, where, where Susan and the Doctor are escaping from the Cybermen on the hill against the Master. All all the wonderful music that used to be in there, and some of the scenes in Happiness Patrol used to feature on those mixtapes for me, mm. uh, because again, it it was the music in this story and the sense of style that really made this story rise above what could have been an incredibly mediocre three-part story for me oh god i think me- mediocre is really is is really complimenting this I'm, I'm i'm gonna have to stop just making snide remarks and explain what i think uh, there are three good things about this story one it is only three parts and secondly mccoy's performance 
which mm. is extremely strong, I think, given the material that he's got. And I think the story itself, which is so... I mean, it, it's so comic book. It should never have been made into a telly series, as far as I'm concerned, because it was almost impossible to achieve its its ambitions, uh, not just through budget, but through the way the story is, is, is told, uh, through the visual medium. It just doesn't seem to work. And lastly, the casting. The casting is stellar. It is absolutely brilliant. Harold Innocent, John Normington, Sheila Hancock, Leslie Dunlop, mm. all mm. of these... Um, guest stars to Doctor Who in one story alone is is amazing. And what do they get? A really cheapened attempt at an allegory with the political system of the time. Helena is supposed to be Margaret Thatcher, which you... You can't appreciate in any way, shape or form, I think, unless you've read some commentary on it or you've listened to something that the author has said in an interview subsequent to broadcast. No, uh, no, I don't no, think it's particularly no, obvious. No, no uh, you let, let me finish. I mean, I, let me I, finish. I, you I, went, I you were only... lyrical about this for ages. I, I've only just started. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just want to pick you up on one thing. I, I was only 18 years old when this went out. I mean, I, I, I wasn't a man of the world or anything like I am now. Even back then despite what and at the time you've got to remember they were saying no this isn't a margaret thatcher allegory they that they weren't saying that it was only later once you know the story had been out for a few years that they were saying yes it really was margaret thatcher but that was the only thing that was the only thing that gave it a modicum of interest you know no. it's, it's there was nothing else there the whole idea and the whole concept of making it illegal to be happy is you know it's a good idea, but not to thrust it as the main plot on a you know what was pretty much prime time during the week when it was transmitted. It just came across as silly. It was the same as the, the Paradise Towers. It's a much cleverer story than you know the casual viewer will appreciate on on first view. But the Kangs came across as silly, and for me, this suffered in production values in the same way Paradise Towers did. In fact, it looked very similar to Paradise you've, Towers. You've made my point there, I think, James, because. Paradise Towers is probably a perfect example of a story that I could put up against Happiness Patrol as two very similar stories in terms of concept, in terms of idea. But Happiness Patrol does it so much oh, better. They've done but they've exactly still got the, the same, same way. But they've, but they've still got the same budgetary limitations. They're still trying to give you the concept of a sprawling metropolis in Happiness Patrol, but of course you know it's a studio-bound story, and it shows. It fails. It fails in every... And not only that, they make the same mistake they made in Paradise Towers. I mean, they've got these go-karts that are used for getaway cars that go two miles an hour. You know, they, they did that within Vengeance and Varos as well. And they just continually made the same mistake again and again. And this is the kind of story, along with Paradise Towers that signified the end of classic Doctor Who on television because it was just seen as so appalling by the not-we. And I think Doctor Who fans can appreciate pretty much any Doctor Who on a different level. And and don't get me wrong, I would still rather watch The Happiness Troll on repeat as opposed to having to watch EastEnders or Big (laughs) Brother. But within the confines of the Doctor Who universe, this is one of the weakest stories ever. I mean, and thank God it's only an hour and 15 minutes long. I mean, Fifi that you talked about, I mean, come on, Sesame Street did much better puppets. And then you're supposed to be emotionally invested when it dies. 
<laughs> you know, luckily, James, we're in charge of a podcast with eleven or 12,000 rabid Doctor Who fans, so Happiness Patrol will be right up their alley. We don't have to convince <laughs> the general public. We have to convince the people listening to this right now. Happiness Patrol is an enjoyable Doctor Who story. And, and I kind of agree with you, James. Yes, this season certainly signified the end of Doctor Who as we know it. It, it. it was the last nail in the coffin. We were producing stories at this time that were too fan-centric, too high concept. But as a high concept story, Happiness Patrol works. I, I think high concept is really complimenting the story and praising things that I don't think are really there. And I, I think you really have to force yourself to get some kind of clever meaning behind a lot of this stuff i mean you can drag out meaning out of anything and in all fairness it's something i've i've discussed with tom on many occasions because tom will come out with something that i've never given a moment's thought before and he enjoys it because he's able to pull something out of the story that i wonder sometimes is it really there or is it just pure desperation and i think the only way you can really enjoy the happiness patrol is if you are so determined to like every story within mccoy's era i think if it didn't have the stellar cast like like you mentioned yep. james sheila hancock is fantastic she adds so many wonderful layers of depth to her character that that she's funny that she's deep um you know the guy playing her husband what what's his name harold innocent Harold, he is incredible. Mm. He, he is absolutely fantastic. He is just so wonderfully, understatedly comic. He, he's one of the highlights of the story for me. I mean, when he, uh, again, spoilers, guys, when he departs the planet and leaves his wife behind when it's all going to, you know, hell in a handbasket, and he basically waves at the camera and says, bye-bye, you know, that, that, that's one of the highlights of the story for me. I mean, Happiness Patrol is filled with such a wonderful moments that I think, stand up for me in repeat viewings i look forward to certain points in this story so much and and it was a joy to rewatch this on dvd it really absolutely, absolutely. there's so many tiny little moments which are which are brought to life by the by the great actors that they got in and the um the relationship between the candy man and gilbert m is is marvelous that you don't discover mm. until later on spoiler warning that he has created the candy man and the candy man is uh, has obviously been around for a while but even he's started to 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 rot around the edges and he's oozing stuff out of his joints so even he's past his best and as for finding things um that are relevant or or interesting things that are in, that are in the uh, the show itself there is there's so much to be had there's an interesting comment which is made on I think it's one of the extras or the commentaries where uh, Andrew Carmel says it this just seems to get more topical and more relevant as the years go by. And I was thinking this as I was watching it, because you have the scenes of the snipers on the roof who are... Oh, uh, that's a terrible scene. Everyone says uh, how fantastic uh, it is. Those snipers are the worst <laughs> snipers ever. It's the what the scene represents. Well, please don't shoot him. Please don't. It's shoot what him. the scene represents, and not. Uh, I mean, the fact that they're shooting uh, innocent people who are protesting uh, is is why the the point I was finding interesting, yeah. which uh, resonates with uh, with what's going on in you know, the Arab Springs and in uh, in Syria at the moment. There's far more than it just being a satire of Margaret Thatcher. It's a satire of commercialisation, which is is right at the fore at the minute with the with the Olympics because. There's lots of the commercialisation of the Olympics, which makes me cringe, and I think this isn't this isn't what makes us happy. You know, this acquisition of goods, buying things. Some would may even also say Doctor Who merchandise, but mm -hmm. all of these things do not make us happy. Uh, happiness is is something which you can't strive for. It's a uh, um, and mm, and I brilliant. like that about the Happiness brilliant. Patrol. It's, you can't just slap on some makeup, um, wear pink clothes, and buy things uh, to make yourself happy. 
but there, there's no leading to that moment in order, in order to appreciate that you know it, and if it was a deliberate comment on on the world politics or the world stage or whatever or whether it was a view on the way that the world was working commercially and the way things were developing i, I you need a leading to that and it wasn't that scene just happened and I think, you know, if, if you are trying to appeal to children um, or, or younger people and they're just watching this, all they can see is the doctor saying, don't kill him. You know, and this guy's day job is to kill people. You know, it, it, it just doesn't make a great deal of sense. I just thought they were really, really poor snipers. Now, that's that's, um, you know. It's the, the idea that uh, that killing people with warfare now is, is dead easy. It's even said in the extras, I think, you know, people press a button now and somebody dies, uh, mm. sometimes miles and miles and miles away. There's no connection between it. What the Doctor does in that scene is he, he sneaks up there and confronts him face-to-face with the fact that you know when he, when he activates that mechanism on that gun, that he is going to take his life. And, and suddenly that sniper, who who's for a living kills people from a distance, has to confront having mm. to kill someone up front. And I, even when I was a kid, I thought that was that was a pretty mm. pretty weighty scene. I, I just I just couldn't I just couldn't get emotionally invested in this story in the slightest. And I think the main reason for that is is towards the end these um, human sized Yoda characters whose <laughs> um, names I, I, or, or words should I say uh, I just couldn't understand. Um, I, I couldn't hear what they were saying. I had to put the um, subtitles on. And even then, I think the stenographer who was doing that has got some of them wrong. <laughs> and they they were they were basically what brought about the resolution to, to to this story. And for me, at the end, I appreciate all of the things that Trevor was saying. You know how the ending was quite uh, emotional. Um, the, the music led you to a place where you're thinking, "Oh wow, you know this is really big." But you, you can only really appreciate that, or at least I could only appreciate that if I've been, you know, if I've been caught up in the story along the way. And I just wasn't. I just wasn't. I mean, I'm not even certain if I got round to watching the final episode when it was transmitted back in the 80s. And uh, I, I was watching these um, these two stories. I was watching um, uh, the Dragonfire uh, um, disc that came with this set uh, directly beforehand, beforehand. And I actually appreciated that a lot more, strangely. And, and I was really hoping to enjoy um, the Happiness Patrol. And I, I, I just I just couldn't. And... Um, oh. Dragonfire is rubbish. Happiness Patrol is at least enjoyable. Oh, well, I, I, I guess this is certainly <laughs> going to be one that's divided opinion, certainly within the camper van, and uh, I, I'm, I'm well, certain it has done in fandom as well. So, <laughs> Let me try and round this out by saying one thing that Happiness Patrol has got for it. If you don't agree with its politics, if you don't agree with its message, if you don't agree with the music, it's got some of the most gorgeous legs you've ever seen in a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> what? Oh. What, John Normington, you mean? Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you are. You've heard our analysis, our critical analysis of two fantastically regarded um, classic stories. Whether or not they're regarded really well or really badly, well, that's kind of what we want to hear from you. So feel free to tell us what you think about our opinions of The Demons and Happiness Patrol. Email address, same as usual, feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com. And, gents, I think that wrapped up another episode of the DWP. We're going to be back in about seven days' time. And what are we going to be talking about when we return? 
Big finish. Big finish. Big finish indeed. Colin Baker, big finish, no less. Join us again in seven days' time when we're going to be talking about some Colin Baker plays. It's been a while since we've sat down and spoken about some big finish Colin Baker plays, and that's something that I'm very much looking forward to do next week. So if you have any views on The Curse of Davros, The Fourth Wall, or We're an Isle, send them to us at feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com as well. Well, lads, I think it's time to go. I think you could be right, Trevor. Well done. Bye for now, everybody. Speak to you soon. Cheerio! That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Right, open the blinds, quick.